Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Education. It's key to democracy. It's really important for a functioning society. Everyone agrees on that. The question is how. How do you create a fair, equal, and successful education system? Well, in Virginia, Attorney General Jason Miares has launched three separate investigations into school systems in Northern Virginia during his first year in office, all tasked to reform education. The Republican Attorney General campaigned on this, and so far, he's really aimed his office's power at Loudoun and Fairfax County school systems, earning him both praise and pushback. His critics say these investigations don't really hold any water. Some even go further to say that Miares is using his office as a political tool to score points. Either way, these investigations have launched Northern Virginia school systems into the national limelight and the broader culture war over wokeism and the equity versus merit-based education debate. Joining me now is Virginia Attorney General Jason Miares. His office will look into the Loudoun County School Board's brazen attempt of cover-up of the sexual assault of a young girl on campus. Uh, there are now three Fairfax County, Virginia high schools fessing up to angry parents after failing to distribute National Merit Scholar Awards before the students applied for college. So is Miara's using his office as a political tool? Or are these investigations into Northern Virginia schools making education better in the Commonwealth? We'll let Miara speak for himself. Attorney General, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for thanks for coming to my office. I know it's great. Look where we are. It's beautiful. It's amazing. You got a football helmet up there. You got the flag. Yeah, that was from a high school in Prince William County, Hilton High School. They wow. decided to get their team. All I did a assembly, and they all signed it. And uh, the Lord may have given me certain blessings, but mm. athletic school is not one of them. And so I was actually thought it was really cool that the <laughs> team wanted to sign the helmet. So I keep it in my office with great pride. So, you know, I really want to talk about education. It's mm-hmm. been, you know, the hallmark of your time in office so far. And everyone really agrees that education plays an essential role in democracy, in the success of Virginia. And a big question, though, is how? You know, how do you make education work? How do you make it fair? And so, you know, we're going to talk about some of your investigations and some of your, you know, school reform, um, many of which you campaign on. But before we do that, you know, I want to hear about your time in the education system itself and how it got you to where you are now. How has education impacted your life? Well, I guess my story is is similar to a lot of children uh, of people that have come here from other countries. Mm. I was kind of raised with this mindset that education was the doorway to the American dream. Uh, My mother fled communist Cuba when she was 19 years old. She was uh, got an airplane penniless and homeless, not knowing where her next meal is going to come from. And so I, you know, I I tell my daughters all the time, gratitude's the most underrated of all human traits. Uh, Ingratitude's the ugliest, but gratitude's the most underrated. And I was raised to have such gratitude that I could be in this country and achieve my dream. Did you always want to be attorney general, like when you were a little kid? No, but I did know I had a very strong interest in becoming an attorney and a lawyer. Mm. Uh, I remember my, my uncle, Angel Miares, he got arrested 
during the Pay a Big Pay a Pigs invasion. He was uh, a known anti-Castroite. Uh, Castro sent a secret police to our house. My mother has memories of them banging on the door mm. and, and putting a machine gun to his head, and uh, they took him to a empty baseball stadium where he suffered the humiliation of a mock execution. And I remember hearing the story from my earliest. Some of my earliest memories were hearing those stories, and I remember, wow, we're different. So nobody, no secret police can come in the middle of the night to take me away just because I've said something bad about the government. And that really got my interest in the law. What is it? What's so unique about our system versus a system like Cuba? And so that's what really got me interested in, in the law is this idea of as individuals, you have certain inalienable rights that simply can't be taken away from you. And that's, that's what put me on the path much more interested in law than biology. And that's right. ultimately why I never went into the medical profession. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you know, some of those ideas that you mentioned, childhood dream, education, you know, getting you there. This first investigation I want to talk about is into Fairfax County schools, you know, and this delayed merit award being given to students and the families. You know, I want to talk about the merit of this investigation, if you will. And yeah. first off, you know, what really was the consequence of these delayed merit awards? Well, I think let me start first with how the investigation started, and then I'll I'll address sure. the the consequence question. The beginning of our investigations in the Fairfax actually was at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. As you know, it is a magnet school, it's mm-hmm. a public magnet school. You have to apply to attend. And I first started hearing from parents saying that coming to my office saying. Listen, my my child has done everything right since the first grade. They've gotten straight A's, but I'm realizing that she's not going to be able to achieve her dream of attending Thomas Jefferson High School, not because of a lack of scores or grades, but simply because she's Korean-American. And I started searing this pattern, so we actually started investigating the admissions policy at Thomas Jefferson High School. And this is what we know, this is in the public public reports, is that the the superintendent of Fairfax Schools hired an equity consultant. They paid this equity consultant $455,000 for about nine months of work, one of their recommendations to the school district was equal outcomes for every student without exception. Mm. That's the equity consultant's recommendations, definitely not mine. And they also made the recommendation that to get to these equal outcomes, you had to be willing to treat some students unequally. In fact, the language the consultant uses is purposefully unequally. Now, we have an anti-discrimination statute in Virginia, and you're not allowed to treat anybody differently based on their race or ethnic origins, and there's a host of protected classes. So we know this. We know that they they hired an equity consultant. They paid this person a large amount of money. They recommended equal outcomes for every student without exception, even if you have to treat them purposefully unequally. And we saw they adopted a new, quote, equity-based admission standard. They went away from a merit standard to an admission standard, which led to a 20-point decrease in just a single year in Asian student enrollment at Thomas Jefferson High School which I found astonishing to see that dramatic of a drop. Uh, you layer on top of that the National Merit Award, where at first we were told it was at a single high school and it was an administrative area. Now we know it's 17 high schools spread over three different jurisdictions. But as far as, as fair as facts, we know over a dozen high schools that have had this issue. We also know that this affected over 1,000 students. Um, and we know that over 70% of the students affected we're Asian American. We know from a public report that when one of the parents asked, why wasn't our, my child ever notified, 
from the public report is that they, they did not want to, quote, hurt the feelings of some of the other students. Now, there's some people that have said, and I've heard these voices as well, that says this doesn't matter. Anybody right. who's a national merit recipient, they're top 3% of any student nationwide, they're going to get into college. Mm. And I admit, if you're a top 3% student, there will be a college that accepts you. I have two problems with that line of thinking, actually probably three. Number one, we should be celebrating merit. I mean, to me, why would we not be celebrating excellence in society? I don't think that's healthy. Number two, I could tell as somebody, I, I worked all four years through college. Why did I go to James Madison University? They gave me some money, and it was in-state. Right. And I could work in the summer, and I could work throughout the school year, and I could graduate with not a ton of debt. Mm. That's the single biggest reason. I loved my time at JMU, but it was the cost. And I could tell you how you're going to pay for college is much more stressful than which college you get into. Mm -hmm. At least if you come from you know, middle class or lower middle class uh, or, or a, a family struggling with means, if you have means, okay, we could pay for it, we just write a check. But if you're from a family that's on a budget, how you pay for college is enormous. Right. Absolutely enormous. We know uh, of at least 800 different scholarships available to students that's available to them if they are a National Merit Award of recognition. And that wasn't available to me. And we know of at least one private school in Virginia that will give free college tuition if you're one of these National Merit Award uh, recipients. We calculated that at over $90,000 of free tuition. And the idea that a parent, a child that has worked so hard, that is in a household, that English is not even the primary language spoken at home. The idea that they may not have been able to uh, achieve being able to attend college without incurring a large amount of debt uh, simply because they failed to do so. That's what we're studying this. That's right. what we're doing the investigation. Yeah. But I, I totally reject the notion that this isn't that big a deal. And then finally, the third reason that I think this is absolutely significant is the schools themselves use this. Thomas Jefferson High School just got rated the number one school in the country by U.S. News and World Report. Mm -hmm. A lot of these schools brag and use as part of their promotional materials how many of their students are National Merit Award recipients. So they can use the, this achievement mm. to brag on themselves, but they won't allow the students that have actually achieved to be able to utilize it as well. I don't think, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. And it, I'm heartbroken for the students that worked so hard and were never even told they had this remarkable achievement. Now, zooming out a little bit from the specifics of this investigation into that broader conversation of you know, merit-based education and equity-based education, many people think that there are some unwritten rules that set some people back. You know, maybe if you're black, you don't have as much advantages in society. You know, how do you think the education system should address those issues that maybe aren't written into law, maybe aren't written in words? You know, how do you attack those without giving some students an advantage or some sort of change? Well, I mean, I think you can have two truths. Uh, you can't have forced equal outcomes. That's impossible. But you can have... I do believe in equal opportunity, but when you go to forced equal outcomes, inevitably what happens is you are hurting other groups as well. I want to have a quality of opportunity, but when you have, when you have this mantra of equal outcomes for every student without exception, even if it means you have to treat some students, quote, purposefully unequally, imagine you're the parent of the child that's been treated purposefully unequally. How are you going to feel? How's your child going to feel? You know what's so startling is... Uh, early this week, I had a roundtable with some um, 
Indian American parents. And they shared with me, and this isn't TJ, but this is this is the dealing with the college admissions is a totally different issue. But two children, both had perfect scores on their SAT in the math portion. Both had over a 4.0. Both got rejected at Virginia Tech. The thing that broke my heart the most, and one's now at Penn State, another one's now at a, a school in Boston. What upset me the most, and that, that was upsetting, is he said, the sad thing is, our children expected it. Their mm. friends expected it. When they talked, they expected, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be treated differently. How does that not trouble every American that believes in what Dr. King's vision of treating people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin? How do we survive as a pluralistic nation if you have individuals that feel stacked against me? We'll be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Now, moving geographically west to Loudoun County, you know, there's investigation into the Loudoun County School um, Board and their handling of two incidences of sexual assault in bathrooms. You know, we've all heard about this, but just to review very quickly, there's a 15-year-old who sexually assaulted someone in a bathroom. The yeah. school then moved that person to another school. It happened again. You've investigated this. There's been a report out. And that report said that Loudoun County School Board, you know, made many missteps at almost every opportunity. Who wrote that report? Was that the grand jury that wrote that report? Yeah, the grand jury wrote the report. So what happened was, and I'm going to be a little bit uh, confined to what I can and cannot of say because we, our office is prosecuting criminal charges that brought forth in this case. But um, this was, uh, so the, the Governor Yunkin signed an executive order within his first hour of taking office, tasking us to investigate exactly what happened. Um, it became quickly apparent early on that for us to get uh, some answers we were seeking, we would need to impanel a grand jury with all the power that comes with that, including the ability to subpoena witnesses. This is a grand jury report. It's not the attorney general's report, but I can comment what is the grand jury report because that is a public document. Mm -hmm. We know that the school district and the school board was saying publicly that they were being fully cooperative with our investigation. We know they filed multiple motions to try to stop our investigation uh, under seal. Uh, we know the grand jury interviewed a host of of witnesses up there at both instances produced a report and I encourage everybody to review the grand jury report. Uh, there are a lot more questions than answers, but that's kind of the background uh, of the grand jury uh, report and uh, where we are, where we are today. And moving to those, you know, charges, there were two people indicted, right? One of them was the former superintendent of Loudoun County, Scott Ziegler. Um, mm -hmm. And, and the charges that were uh, mounted, I think, I believe there were three, but what made me scratch my head a little bit was none of them relate to those two incidences of sexual assault. They actually relate to one of like a, a public address to the media for giving false information. And then the two others relate to another incidence. Can you clarify the dissonance between the report focusing on those sexual assault incidences and, and the charges? Like, how, how are they connected? Well, the investigation was not to investigate whether sexual assaults occurred. They, they're already criminal charges brought 
uh, dealt with in the criminal system. The investigations of the timeout, where were there systematic failures in the process leading up to this? And obviously the questions that were being asked by the public of how a sexual assault could happen in one school and then go to another school. So the grand jury also was answering some of those basic questions and obviously uh, pointed out a lot of areas where the great from the grand jury's perspective of improvements that needed to happen. But some of the stuff, uh, some of the items that the grand jury unearthed in the report uh, isn't necessarily criminal per se, but it eye-opening. It's eye-opening that when the first sexual assault took place, it took place in a bathroom stall in the bathroom where the, the sexual assault occurred. I'm not going to get too graphic, but a teacher walked into the bathroom. A teacher admitted that they knew there was sexual activity of some sort happening in the bathroom stall. The teacher then left the bathroom and never told a single person. Now, we could go back and forth, I mean, whether there's a duty to report, but at the end of the day, that should trouble, that should show you know, what, what, what kind of training, what was happening with these teachers. And so I'm a big believer that, that sunlight's the best disinfectant. There's items that report weren't necessarily uh, uh, chargeable under a criminal code, but that wasn't necessarily what we were tasked with. We right. were tasked with getting to the broader broader answers of what happened. And and obviously, in the course of the grand jury, the grand jury has to be clear. They make the decision to indict, uh, and they brought these. They're the ones that confirm these indictments. Mm. Ultimately, it's in their hands. Now, I mentioned these two investigations because it goes to that you know theme of education that's really dominated your time as attorney general. You know, your critics, everyone's got them, but your critics say that these are political in nature. Used. I think that's laughable. My job as the attorney general, I often tell my team, we're the people's protector. We have 21 sections in this office, everything from major crimes and emerging threats to consumer protection, to civil rights, to environmental protection. So this office carries so much. It is absolutely true that when you start to investigating failures in our education system, it's going to get a lot of media attention because it is one of the areas of government that is the closest to the heart of the citizenry. Uh, as a as a parent of three school-age children, it is absolutely, you talk about education, it's going to be on my radar. So obviously the media is going to uh, focus a lot of what we're doing. It's obviously not the only thing we're doing. We have several hundred people that work in this office. They do incredible, incredible good work every day. But our job is to seek the truth. And in all of our investigations, whether it is Fairfax or whether it is Loudoun, first of all, the, the individual leading the investigation in Loudoun, this is somehow some, some type a political investigation. She is a lifelong Democrat, Theo Stamos. She was the elected Democrat Commonwealth attorney in Arlington for years. She's still a lifelong Democrat. She is a fantastic investigator. And I told Theo and I told every in Fairfax, my investigators involved at their Fairfax. All you're ever going to hear from me is I only want two things from you. Two things and two things only. I want you to be fearless and I want you to be deliberate. You'll never get an artificial timeline. You'll never get any pressure from my office, from the, from the executive suites here of, of doing anything. All I ask for you is to be fearless and deliberate. That's what she did in Loudoun. That's what she did on the parole board investigation that we just wrapped up. She was fearless and deliberate. That's all I asked from her. Mm. And that's what we want because you had so many parents that wanted truth and they weren't getting the answers that they sought. I would remind your listeners that the school board paid a large amount of money for an outside independent investigation. They produced a report and then 
they never released it to the public. They never released it to the public. They paid probably $100,000, $200,000 of taxpayer money on a report to get to the truth and then never told the public what happened. That was the opposite of what we said. We're going to say, listen, we're going to find what the truth is uh, without fear or prejudice. Mm. Uh, we're going to be fearless and deliberate. Yes, we filed a motion for the grand jury report to be unsealed so the public could get the answers they, they didn't know. And I'm proud of the work they've done. And so moving on to another section of your office that you mentioned and alluded to, the opioid epidemic is real um, for many families. And it's been entering schools, you know, just a few weeks ago in Arlington, Wakefield High School, there was a tragic incident where a student died from a suspected overdose. We don't have the full answers yet, but it's suspected. You know, what is your office doing to stave off and, and hopefully end, you know, this crisis? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I don't use the word crisis at all. I think a lot of politicians use it for anything they want to justify. Mm. But what we are facing now is unlike anything we've ever seen as a country. Um, we lose anywhere between four to seven Virginians a day uh, to overdose. Enough fentanyl crosses uh, our southern border to kill every single man, woman, and child twice over. It's the equivalent of a fully loaded 727 crashing every day in this country. In the last 12 months, we've lost 108,000 Americans to fentanyl and opioid overdoses. To put things in perspective, we lost 50,000 men and women in Vietnam over the course of 15 years. So it is the equivalent of two Vietnam wars every 12 months. It is affecting every single aspect. Uh, there was an overdose that happened just in the past week, a ninth grader overdosed in Loudoun. Right before I started this interview with you, I met with a group of parents uh, downstairs in the AG's office that have lost children to fentanyl. Tragic, tragic stories. Each one is horrific. Uh, but they were here to demanding a piece of legislation my office is championing, which says if I'm a drug dealer and I lace heroin or Percocet or Xanax with fentanyl, it's like giving somebody rat poison. And prosecutors should be allowed to prosecute you for felony homicide. Um, four years ago, I helped carry the bill. I was the co-patron of the bill. It passed with wide bipartisan support. And fortunately, got the Governor Ralph Northam's desk, and Governor Northam vetoed it. Uh, we have a new governor. He's pledged he would sign that into law. It passed the House. It died on a party-line vote in the Senate. And this is just what's frustrating for me is uh, when it passed four years ago, it had over close to 20, 20 of my friends on the other side of the aisle, 20 Democrats voted for it. Um, this time, none are willing to, even though the problem is that much worse than it was even four years ago. Mm. Uh, so, so we're pushing legislation. We started the One Pill Can Kill campaign because one pill, we, we had a, a 15 and a 14-year-old uh, die in Prince William County. They thought they were taking a Percocet. Uh, fentanyl is ubiquitous. It is everything. And the dealers are purposely lacing. You're a heroin dealer. And this shows you how, how the cycle of addiction is so destructive. They will purposely lace some of their heroin with fentanyl to kill some of their customers. And that seems counterintuitive, why? right? Here's why. Because it, when you're in the cycle of addiction, you want a, you have to get a stronger and stronger hit for a stronger high for, to get the same high you had before. The dealers know that if they kill some of their customers, the word gets out on the street. He has the pure heroin. He has the pure stuff. That's who he actually, it is a perverse evil marketing scheme mm. that some of these dealers do to kill some of their customers so they can get new ones. 
And those people should be treated what they are. They're murderers. The, the, family I, the, fa- the, the families I met with right before I sat mm-hmm. down with you, they know one drug dealer, two of those women both have lost, one lost a daughter, one lost a son, same drug dealer, both give, they gave them basically fake Xanax and fake pills. And they know of at least one other. So this one drug dealer has purposely murdered three innocent Virginians. That person should be charged with murder. And it's just heartbreaking. But one pill can kill, back to my public service announcement. And this would be, listen, statistically speaking, there is somebody listening or watching this podcast yeah. that is struggling with addiction or depression, and they're often intertwined. And what I would say is we have this, such a misnomer in our culture and our society that somehow asking for help is a sign of weakness. It's not. Asking for help is the bravest thing you can ever do. It's the strongest thing you can ever do. Asking for help, your loved ones would be forever grateful that you asked for help. And so if you're listening and you're asking for help, there's help for you. Uh, We're very proud of the fact that we have gotten these huge settlements from these pharmaceutical companies. Right. And that money's not coming to my office. It's going to the Opioid Abatement Authority. Over a billion dollars going to go back to localities for treatment. And so seek help because there's more resources coming back to Virginia than ever before. And our goal is that you live independent, self-sufficient lives. Um, You live in an amazing country. This is what I try to explain to people is um, you won life's lottery by being born here. There's somebody woke up this morning in this planet just as smart as you, just as talented as you. But they don't live in a society where they could achieve their dreams. Or they live in a society that's going to treat them differently because they worship God differently. Or they've spoken out for human rights and they could be taken away in the middle of the night. You don't have those barriers. Don't let the cycle of addiction break you from being able to achieve your dreams when so many people wish they could be where you are. And that's the one thing. We live in an amazing country in an amazing time. For all of our faults, we are still that last best on hope that has given more second chances to more people than any country that's ever existed. Go live your dream. Break the cycle of addiction, and your family will be forever grateful that you just simply asked for help. Attorney General, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you. And that'll do it for us today on the DMV Download. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at WTOP.com, and of course on the WTOP News app. And thank you for listening. Let us know how we're doing. Give us some stars on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find out more about the show at dmvdownload.com. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you Wednesday.